This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Atlantic, The Young Turks, Comedian Lee Camp, Jim Hightower, Moyers and Company, The Majority Report, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, and The Now Show. And remember that no one ever thinks of themselves as the bad guy. So let's just add that to the list of things that corporate executives are regularly wrong about. Let's say you're the CEO of one of America's largest companies. First, congratulations. You are incredibly rich. But how rich? Well, it depends on the decade. If you're an average CEO in the 1950s, you're making about 20 times more than a typical worker. In the 1980s, about 42 times more. Today, between 200 and 270 times more. And last year's most unequal CEO was J.C. Penney's Ron Johnson. He earned 1,900 times more than his typical worker. CEO pay has exploded in the last few decades, that's obvious. But is it because CEOs are more valuable or because they're just being paid more? Well, the answer is both. America's corporations are bigger and more complicated than they were 50 years ago. The biggest U.S. company in 1955 was General Motors. Its revenue was $90 billion in today's dollars, and it had hundreds of thousands of employees, mostly in North America. Today, there are 20 American companies with more than $90 billion in revenue. And many of them, like Walmart or GE, have half or more of their employees working outside the U.S. If you're at the helm of one of America's most important corporations these days, you're acting on the world stage. It's a bigger job. But the second reason CEOs are paid more is that they're paid differently. They're more likely to be compensated with something a little more valuable than old-fashioned salary. Stock options now account for half the typical pay package of America's leading CEOs. Using stock to reward performance sounds prudent. It's like giving your kid a little extra cash if he gets straight A's. So in the 1990s, more companies started paying CEOs with stock. If the CEO turned out to be a genius and the company thrived, he would be paid like a king. But remember the 90s? The stock market exploded. Every CEO looked like a genius, and new CEOs, seeing their friends take home huge pay packages, said, hey, I want some stock. Hey, me too. Stock, please. In the last 20 years, typical pay for a CEO at one of America's largest companies has ridden this stock market roller coaster. From $4 million in 1993 to more than $17 million in the dot-com bubble, then way down in the bust, up and down and back up to $12 million. CEO pay is like any price. It will rise to the level that people will put up with. For enormously talented people, in positions of nearly unparalleled power, it's very difficult to know what their true value is. So America's largest companies simply err on the safe side and pay through the nose. from time to time that, boy, you know, we need the talents of high-level CEOs. I remember after 2008 crash, so you're crazy, we got to keep paying the bankers who crashed the global economy millions in bonuses. Why? Why? 
No, because their talent is so high level, it makes all the difference. But they, their high level talent just crashed the economy and cost us uh, trillions of dollars in bailout money, ultimately hundreds of billions of dollars from taxpayers. So what, what's the no, 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 you don't understand. See, liberals, you don't understand facts, okay? These guys, I mean, we're talking about stock prices. We're talking about results. Again, the crash was a result. There was no question about that, right? But no, they say, you should look at the stock market. Okay, great. You know what? Equilar, which is an executive compensation consultancy, did look at the stock market. Now, they're not, they're not remotely liberals. They don't have any political opinion. Their job is to determine what compensation executives should get. So they went to the analysis. Now, let me show you one of my favorite charts. This is great. This is a chart of how much compensation equaled results. If it looks like the dots are all over the place, it's because they are. <laughs> there is, it turns out, no correlation whatsoever between compensation of executives and how their companies actually perform. I'll give you more details. They explain, the com comparison makes it look as if there is zero relationship between pay and performance. Chief executive pay is only 1% based on stock performance. Shareholders at the companies that pay their CEOs the most actually get the worst results with an average shareholder loss of $1.4 billion. Well played, well played. So you know what? When in doubt, pay them more. Median chief executive pay jumped above eight figures for the first time last year, hitting $10.5 million. Let's pause here to analyze a little bit. So we show that there's almost no correlation whatsoever between your stock performance, how well your company does financially, and what you're paying your CEO. Nonetheless, CEO pay is at a record amount Ten and a half million dollars a year on average. What are you getting for that money? Literally nothing. Okay. In fact, the guys who are paid the most get you the worst results. So why do we have a system like that? Well, that's because largely the executives get to pick their own boards. <laughs> One time, comically, at Disney, uh, they, <laughs> the executive got to pick his own dentist, his son's basketball coach, and put him on the board. Gee, I wonder what they decided to do. Oh, they decided to give him more money. <laughs> wow, what a surprise, right? So the system is fixed. This is all one big giant happy circle where they all give each other tons and tons of money. And if you're an actual capitalist and you care about a shareholder return, <laughs> they don't care about you. And what do they do? They also fix the government. So they go and they get tax breaks for corporations. They get tax breaks for themselves. And in the end, they wind up with all the money. And taxpayers certainly don't wind up with it. In fact, taxpayers have to bail them out from time to time. And how about shareholders? They don't get it either. No, only the executives get it. Man, it is a brilliant system that they have set up where there's no accountability and all the money flows to them. So it's when we, when we say that's an issue, that's a problem, we're not saying that it's, capitalism is wrong. We're saying let's fix it so that capitalism actually works. Wouldn't it be great if the owners of the company, those are the shareholders, if the owners of the company actually got to tell you what to do with the company? I know, crazy idea. <laughs> I was led to believe that was capitalism, not this. This is insanity. All right, more if you're not convinced. The average pay package was $15.2 million, a 21% increase since 2010. So that's the difference between median and average. The average is even higher because some of the guys at the top end make so much money that it skews the average to over $15 million. Okay, now... 
hey, how are the workers doing in all this? Because I'm given to understand that if you give all this money to the executives, well, the company does great. Well, it turns out we found out that's actually not true. Uh, but that it's okay because their economy is going to do great. And when the economy goes, does great, it's going to trickle down on your head and then your wages are going to be higher. Let's see if that turned out to be true. Over the last 30 years, chief executive pay has risen 127 times faster than worker pay, despite the fact that workers' productivity has kept increasing. So, average American worker, your productivity is fantastic. Are you going to get any return for that? Not exactly. Okay. Now, how about the CEOs whose productivity is apparently irrelevant to stock price and how well the company does? What are they going to get? They're going to increase their pay at 127 times rate of your pay. You think they might have fixed the system a little bit? <laughs> when we say there's an issue here, it isn't to hurt our economy. It isn't to hurt our way of life. It's actually to protect our way of life, because this ain't it. This is crony capitalism, where they these guys buy off the government, they get their own guys inside their own companies, so they don't even have to be responsible for the companies that they run. Because the whole point is, how can you direct all of the money as quickly as possible to the executives? And if later the company blows up, who cares? It's not their company anyway. It's your company, the shareholders. Ha ha, joke's on you. And you know what, shareholders, you don't want to pay? Don't worry. Usually, especially if they're banks, we can get the taxpayer suckers to bail them out anyway. So we all lose, we socialize the losses, and they privatize the gains and put it right in their pocket. In this life, one thing counts. In the bank, large amounts. I'm afraid these don't grow on trees. You've got to pick a pocket or two. You've got to pick a pocket or two, boys. You've got to pick a pocket or two. Large amounts don't grow on trees. You've got to pick a pocket or two. Why should we break our backs stupidly paying tax? Better get some untaxed income. Better pick a pocket or two. You've got to pick a pocket or two, boys. You've got to pick a pocket or two. I know it's tough to talk about these things. All right, whenever you start to talk about them, people say you're too political, right? I get that all the time. Oh, Lee, you wear your politics on your sleeve and your thong on the outside. That was one time. Look, I know, I'm too political for college campuses, I'm too political for most TV shows. In every children's birthday party I perform at, people sign out a complaint form, and they're like, oh, we didn't like that the clown put the balloon animals inside cages and said they were factory farm balloon animals. Well, I'm sorry then. Everybody who doesn't talk about them, everybody who remains quiet, everybody who's calling you too political, they're taking a political stance. Silence is a political stance. It's standing up quite boldly and saying, I am fine with the status quo. I think everything is going great. Now shut up and go back to your fried onion cheesy poppers. These are important times. This is dark versus light, evil versus good. Mel Gibson now versus 1993 Mel Gibson. We're in the middle of a drop-down, drag-out, bloody fucking war, and a lot of us are too dumb, medicated, or blissfully uneducated to even realize it. Maybe we need a paradigm-shattering moment to realize that we're witnessing the liquidation of everything we've built over 200 years. 
I mean, this form of ravenous, unfettered capitalist domination of the mental sphere, the natural here and now, is a is a, an extraction, a digestion, a defecation on anything and everything that matters to the average human being. A few thousand people are buying up our future. And the question now is only whether we can put our differences aside long enough to tell them to go fuck themselves with a rusty dildo or, or snuff themselves with a poison glass of Merlot. And the funny thing is, when you think about it, the people that are fighting to save the dolphins, are fighting to save our rights, are fighting against the frack holes and the police brutality assholes, are all fighting against the same people. At the heart of it, our enemy is the same, okay? It's the same few thousand global profit hordes that are buying up everything. And so we need to realize that at the end of the day, our enemy is the same. Are you blind or do you see? Either way we should agree. We're up against an enemy. Common enemy. Could you change your perspective from the criminal to the detective? Where's Charles Dickens when we need him? The novelist who laid bare the shame of gross income inequality in 19th century England came up with some perfectly fitting names for his fat cat characters, including Scrooge, Mr. Tulkinghorn, Miss Havisham, and Nickleby. So I'm wondering what moniker Dickens would have given to Robert Marcus. He's the CEO of Time Warner Cable, who has just won gold in the Greed Olympics for grabbing the most gold with the least effort in the shortest time. Marcus became chief of the cable company on January 1st, and he immediately reached out to his corporation's biggest rival, Comcast, offering to sell Time Warner to that giant. Only six weeks later, the deal was done. Why would a CEO rush to eliminate both his corporation and his own job? Perhaps because of a lucrative little provision in the contract he signed to become Time Warner's honcho. It's a CCC, a change of control clause. This is yet another way for CEOs to feather their own nest, for a CCC hands a big golden parachute to the top executive of a corporation that gets sold. In this case, Robert pockets $80 million. Yes, that's roughly $1.8 million a day for each of about 45 days he worked to sell the company. What we have here is a perverse form of incentive pay for corporate chieftains. Rather than rewarding them for outcompeting their rivals, a CCC encourages them to sidle up to their competitors and whisper, Psst, want to buy my corporation? This is Jim Hightower saying, not only did Marcus sell off Time Warner, but his self-serving deal will also sell out untold numbers of its employees who will be made redundant by the merger. We hear about America's widening gap in income inequality, but here we can actually see it widen. One rich man gains an extra $80 million, and hundreds of workers lose their income. Shirt from 
there's nothing sweet. You've reached today's activism segment. Now that you're informed and angry, here's a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's update, Comcast is still trying to buy up the competition. The not completely terrible all of the time component of today's update is that the Comcast Time Warner merger is still pending. The Federal Communications Commission has yet to stamp approved on the deal, which would make Comcast the sole cable provider in around two-thirds of the U.S. There's still a sliver of time to take action at freepress.net where you can voice your concerns to your elected officials and the FCC, as well as share some well-made memes, videos, and talking point debunking facts around your networks. Why is it so important? Well, while dealing with a lack of cable competition is irritating, the big oppositional push is because of the potential effect a massive conglomerate would have on internet speed and net neutrality. According to Free Press, if you bundle your internet and cable together, post-merger you'd have more than a 50-50 shot of Comcast being your only option. And Comcast Executive Vice President David Cohen has spent the past week sweet-talking FCC officials into believing there's nothing to see here and nothing to worry about. According to Kate Tumorello at The Hill, Cohen has been pushing back on critics' claims that a Comcast Time Warner amalgamation would hurt competition. Cohen says through a company statement, quote, While some commenting parties will likely raise concerns regarding industry consolidation generally, the Commission's review of license transfer proceedings should focus on transaction-specific issues on protecting competition, not competitors. So basically, don't concern yourselves with the potential effect of the service we'd providing as a massive monopoly. Look over here at the paperwork possibilities and snore-inducing logistics. You FCC guys like logistics, right? While Cohen was busy sweet-talking the FCC, Comcast and Time Warner were off spending more than $130,000 on a dinner honoring one of the federal regulators who will rule on the merger. According to Josh Hicks at the Washington Post, Comcast is listed as a presenting sponsor at the Walter Kites Foundation, where an FCC panel member is being honored, and they had to donate at least $110,000 for that sponsorship. To be fair to Comcast, it does seem like a reasonable business decision to spend 100 k on their way to a $45 billion merger deal. If all of that sounds shady as shit to you, and I can't imagine how it wouldn't, and you value your ability to access unsponsored, unspammed, uninterrupted content online, visit freepress.net and get involved. Now is the time. The FCC won't wait forever to rule, and with wins on SOPA and PIPA, we must understand that our voices matter. Avoiding taxes has become a hallmark of America's business icons, Apple, Google, GE, and many more of the Fortune 500. The nation's largest corporations are sitting on more than $2 trillion in cash, while revenue from corporate income taxes has plummeted from just below 40% in 1943 to just below 10% in 2012. 
government and big business have colluded to create what's tantamount to an unlimited IRA for corporations. That's not my term, although I wish I'd thought of it because it explains so much about what's gone wrong in a country where some 20 million workers who would like a full-time job still can't get one. Yet the upper 1% of the population takes home a staggering 22.5% of America's income while their effective federal income tax rate has dropped. Though the phrase was coined by Joseph Stiglitz, a man eminently worth quoting, a Nobel Prize winner and one of the world's most influential economists. Currently, he's president of the International Economic Association, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Bill Clinton, and the author of best-selling books that have shaped worldwide debates on globalization, income inequality, and the role of government in the financial marketplace. Now he's written one of his shortest but most important works, this white paper published by the Roosevelt Institute where Joseph Stiglitz is a senior fellow. It's a mere 27 pages, but in clear and cogent prose, backed up by facts and figures, it lays out a plan that not only would reform our taxes, but create jobs and strengthen the economy. I've asked him here to tell us about it. Welcome. Nice to be here. You argue that elimination of corporate welfare, or at least its reduction, should be at the center of tax reform. Why? Well, let me put it in a broader context. Our country faces a lot of challenges. 20 million Americans would like a full-time job and, and can't get one. Uh, we have growing inequality. We have environmental problems that threaten the future of our planet. I think we can use our tax system to create a, a better society, to be an expression of our true values. But if people don't think the fair tax system is fair, they're not going to want to contribute. It's going to be difficult to get them to pay. And unfortunately, right now, our tax system is neither fair nor efficient. Look at the tax rate paid by that 1%. It's much lower than the tax rate paid by somebody whose income is lower, who works hard uh, for a living, as a percentage of their income. You know, Warren Buffett put it uh, a very, very, you know, why should he pay a lower tax rate on his reported income than his secretary? And the interesting thing that he didn't emphasize was most of his income is in the form of unrealized capital gains. Unrealized capital gains are not taxed as long as the owner keeps them, right? Doesn't, doesn't get rid of them. And it's even worse if you're a corporation and you even realize the capital gains, but you're abroad, you don't bring the money back home, there's still no taxes. As long as they don't bring the money back here, it accumulates and grows and grows and grows and they get wealthier. But it's even worse than that because it means that they have an incentive to keep their money abroad. Mm. What does that mean? They have an incentive to create jobs abroad. And with our trade agreements, they can take the goods they are produced abroad with this tax-free money, bring it back in the United States, basically making it unfair competition with the goods produced by Americans. Yeah, there are several startling statements in your uh, report. This is one of them. Our current tax system encourages multinationals 
to invest abroad and create jobs abroad, as you just said. And yet, these are people who defend their practices by saying, we are the job creators, we're the job producers. And yet you say, they have an incentive to send jobs abroad. The whole discussion of who are the job creators, I think, has been misplaced. What really creates jobs is demand. I spend my money to buy things. Exactly. Americans of all income groups are entrepreneurial. You got people across our income distribution who, when there's a demand, respond to that demand. But if there's no demand, there won't be jobs. Now, the problem is that the people in the 1% have so much money that they can't spend it all. The people at the bottom are spending all of their income and hardly getting by. In fact, a very large fraction of those in the bottom 80% are spending more than their income and it's part of the instability of our economy. So the point is this inequality contribute to which our tax system contributes actually weakens our demand. And that's why one of the main messages of, 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 of my report, which is if we had a more progressive tax system, we could get a more efficient economy because there would be more jobs being created. So these 20 million people I referred to, and you referred to in your report, who are looking for full-time work but can't find it, if they had that work, they'd be spending their money. They're not going to send it to the Cayman Islands, right? And that's right. And, and they're going to be paying taxes because they don't have the opportunities for tax avoidance that the people who have the Cayman Islands and can use these unlimited IRAs and other ways of tax avoidance, you know, they don't keep the money in the Cayman Islands because the sunshine makes the money grow better. <laughs> uh, they put their money there because the lack of sunshine, the way of tax avoidance. Dark money, money yeah. in the shadows, money now going into our political process, as, as you know so well, to reinforce this tax code. That's right. Reinforce the tax code, which... In, has led America to be the country with the highest level of inequality of any of the advanced countries. Give us a working definition for the laity of corporate welfare. Well, this was an idea that I began talking about when I was serving as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Oh, 20 years and ago. Right? 20 years ago, and, and everybody was talking about how much money you were giving to the poor people. And it wasn't, if you actually looked at the amount of money, it wasn't that much. But we said, well, you're also giving away a lot of money to rich corporations, directly and indirectly. Most of the indirect way is through the tax system. So, for instance, if you give special tax provisions for oil companies, so they don't pay the full share of taxes that they ought to be paying, that's, that's a welfare benefit. Uh, Lots of other provisions in our, hidden in our tax code basically help one industry or another that can't be justified in any economic terms. And so that's where we coined the, the term corporate welfare. It's caught on and because it says it's a subsidy, but not a subsidy to help going to a poor person, which is where welfare ought to be going, but going to the richest uh, Americans going to our rich corporations. So we have a tax code that encourages companies to send their profits abroad, to send jobs abroad, and to reward owners of their company whose money may not come back to the United States. 
It doesn't make any sense, you might say. <laughs> and, and the fact it doesn't, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the paper was, you know, there's a lot of the discussion going on about we have a budget deficit. Mm. Uh, and we have to slash this and slash that and cut back education and cut back research, things that will make our economy stronger, cut back infrastructure. Uh, and I think that's counterproductive. It's weakening our economy. But the point I make in this paper is it would be easy for us to raise the requisite revenue. It's not a, not a problem. It's, this is not as if it's going to oppress our economy, we could actually raise the money and make our economy stronger. For instance, we're talking about the taxation of capital. If we just tax capital in the same way we tax ordinary Americans, people who work for a job, who pay taxes we pay on wages, if we eliminate the special provisions of capital gains, if we eliminated the, the special provisions for dividends, um, we could get over the next 10 years over you know approximately two trillion dollars and those are numbers according to the cbo and so we're talking about lots of money the figures make sense to me but the politics doesn't because these are the people once again who dominate our system with their contributions to the politicians who then have no interest in changing a system that rewards their donors we have this vicious cycle where economic inequality gets translated into political inequality, it gets translated into rules of the game that lead to more economic inequality and which allow that economic inequality to get translated into ever more political inequality. So my view, you know, the only way we're going to break into this vicious cycle is if people come to understand that there is an alternative system out here, that there's an alternative way of raising taxes that we are not really faced with a budget crisis. It's a man-made crisis. You know, when we had the government shutdown, we realized that that was a right. that was a, a man that was a political crisis. That wasn't a, an economic crisis. And the same thing about our budget crisis. You know, it's not that that we couldn't raise the revenues in a way which actually could make our economy stronger. We can, if we just had a fair tax system to tax capital at the same rate that we tax ordinary individuals, if we just made those people in that upper 1% pay their fair share of the taxes, they get 22.5% of the income, well, let's make sure that they pay a, a commensurate part of our income tax. If we had taxes that would be designed to improve our environment, if we you mean about taxing pollution, taxing pollution, carbon emissions, a general principle that we've known for a long time, a lot better to tax bad things than good things rather than tax people who work. Let's shift some of that burden into things that are bad, like pollution. You make it sound so easy, and I'm still hung up on your saying, you know, it would be easy to do these things. And yet if they were easy, why haven't we done them? Well, it's that, that's the politics. The, the fact is that we have a political process that I won't say is broken, but is certainly not functioning the way we think a democracy is supposed to function. You know, in democracy, it's supposed to be one person, one vote. Yeah. 
And there's a well-developed theory about what does that imply for the outcome of a political process. We talk about it called the median voter. It should reflect the middle. You know, some people want more spending. Some people want less spending. Some people, you know, so, so the nature of democracy is compromise. And it's supposed to be compromise sort of in the middle. But that's not what we have today in the United States. Uh, we have a tax system that reflects not the interest of the middle. We have a tax system that reflects the interest of the 1%. Well, I know just what you think of me, drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me, I feel it trickle down. I know just what you think of me, drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me, I feel it trickle down. Turns you on to high, convinced you made our kings had a deep-seated deep effect. It's hard to keep the money if the money gets spread around. Gotta hold on to that dollar, gotta hold on to that pound. Gotta keep it all together, gotta keep the group close knit. Cause whatever you negotiate is what you're gonna get. Talk about this Stuart Varney uh, sound because there is an attempt, at least in the Senate, it's not gonna go anywhere. It's gonna be stopped in the House. And yet, Media is reporting on it seriously to stop the practice of inversion, which is a massive loophole in our tax code, wherein a corporation can essentially buy a subsidiary in a foreign country or can merge with a subsidiary, which has very little to do with their business. I mean, they can anything, really, any entity and use that for tax purposes to evade U.S. taxes. Now, I note that this obviously is not going to pass. Nothing passes in the Senate and House these days. Nothing. And I note that it's being reported upon, and there are hearings, because we also hear conservatives talk about how impeachment is so impossible to imagine that it's just simply a scare tactic. We will talk about that later in the program. But Stuart Varney and Fox and Friends apparently think this notion of stopping corporations from either purchasing other corporations or merging for the explicit and often sole reason to avoid paying U.S. taxes. Here is Stuart Varney appearing on with the um, the not very bright people on Fox and Friends. The nation's largest drugstore chain, Walgreens, I was there yesterday. Well, I, apparently Walgreens is the latest company to consider Plus, shifting its... It is unconfirmed as to whether or not Steve Dushi was at Walgreens, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt headquarters overseas due to the United States high corporate tax structure. Big companies are feeling due to a major tax loophole and the president has some pretty harsh words for them. A small but growing group of big corporations are fleeing the country to get out of paying taxes. They're keeping most of their business inside the United States but they're basically renouncing their citizenship and declaring that they're based someplace else just to avoid paying their fair share. 
That's the president's big address over the weekend. Here to explain is the host of Varney and Company, Stuart Varney. Stuart, unpatriotic companies leaving the country, what are they thinking? Okay. The president, I think, is setting up business, setting up the Republicans so that in the election in November he can say, look at those people. They're taking their money overseas. They're unpatriotic. They're not doing the right thing. They're not paying their fair share. It's a setup so that the president can look very good come the November elections. Please. What he's... Okay. There's, there's numerous corporations who Pause want it. to leave... So it's a setup. In other words, it's like a political argument that the president is making because it will make him look good because Americans resent the fact that these corporations are using our infrastructure and are simply skirting tax rates. Okay. This, of course, is very insidious and unheard of in politics. Eve America put their headquarters, couple of jobs, overseas so that they can take advantage of lower tax rates over there compared to the sky-high rates over here. Now, the president wants to put a fence around America, stop anybody leaving. That's what he wants to do. Instead of encouraging them to stay... Or getting on Congress and say lower the corporate tax rate. Incentivize right. staying but he, he does right not off. negotiate with Congress. He doesn't deal with Congress. He doesn't have friends on the other side of the aisle with whom he could get together and structure some kind of a deal. But the worst result of all of this is that we've got $2.1 trillion of American corporate profits which are going to stay over there. Because if they come back over here, they lose 35% sure. of the federal government. So it stays there, it doesn't do us any good here. Let me put a now, what he's also talking about is another practice where corporate uh, uh, corporations offshore their profits and wait to repatriate their money. This is a different practice that he's conflating here, uh, probably knowingly. During the Eisenhower presidency, corporations were given, American corporations were given a tax benefit to promote the development of other markets around the world. You'll remember it is after World War II, and Eisenhower says, you don't have to pay the corporate tax rate in this country until you repatriate the money. And that essential be that benefit, that gift, was never rescinded. So back in 2005, George Bush, 2003 perhaps, and the Republicans passed the American Jobs Creation Act, which allowed the one-time repatriation of these profits that have been offshored at a 30% discount on taxes, ostensibly so that this would create jobs. Every study that has been done of the implications of that law has shown that zero jobs were created. And in fact, many of the biggest proponents of this, the corporate proponents, ended up cutting jobs. It was just a way to provide dividends to their shareholders and bonuses to their executives. A graphic. Uh, let me show you, ladies and gentlemen, where businesses are not putting their money. They're not putting them in the UAE. Their tax rate is 55%. Here in the United States, we're at 40. Japan's 35, along with Angola and Argentina. We're at 35. Continue. Well, let me show you one other graphic that shows you uh, recent 
big companies that have moved uh, from the United States. Bosch and Lom has gone to uh, Canada. Jim Beam has gone to Japan. Yeah. And Chiquita Banana is in Ireland. And Walgreens is about to leave to go to, to, go to Europe. They buy yeah. a smaller company in order to yes. move the headquarters there. Yes, but instead of admitting that the environment here to maintain business at profit in the United States is bad, the president then is blaming companies for yes. doing what they need uh, to do. American corporate profits are at near record highs. Continue. Stay here. Pay up. Pay your fair share. That's what he's saying. Now, would you allow, for example, a company in Illinois to move to Texas to take advantage sure. of lower taxes? Absolutely. Of course we do. So why don't we allow corporations to take advantage of low taxes? And the whole thing, what is the goal of the corporation? To maximize profits and revenue for the it's investors and their shareholders. To do that. Absolutely. Positive. So that's... Uh, so in other words... It's not like we get any benefit, according to these Fox and Friends people, if they stay here and pay their taxes in terms of jobs and investment. No, they're not doing anything differently. They're just not paying their fair share of taxes. So, yes, it is obvious what you do. You build a fence around this country <laughs> to keep them metaphorical one, I should say, to keep them from skirting U.S. laws when it comes to paying their taxes. Uh, that's capitalism. I know how you feel about it. Barney <laughs> and Company, 11 to 1. Thank that's you very you. much. Thank you. I'll be yeah, there you go. That is uh, indeed capitalism. The capitalist system rules teaching us to lie. Corruption is the name of money making blood for well. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. year 2013, New York City procured 16.5 billion, with a B, worth of supplies and construction services. But none of those dollars flowed into a New York City cooperative business. Why not? Well, that's a question raised by our next guest at a recent New York City Council hearing on the value of worker co-ops. Chris Michael is the executive director of the New York City Network of Worker Cooperatives. It helps worker cooperatives get started and a whole lot more. If the city really wants to reduce inequality, he told the hearing, it would be smart to change some policies. Welcome to the program. Glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So $16.5 billion. What could New York City's worker co-ops do with that kind of cash? Well, certainly that could provide for thousands upon thousands of democratic jobs in the first place. What do you mean by a democratic job? What, what does a dollar in a co-op do that's different from a dollar in a different kind of business? Well, so in the first place, when a revenue or income is provided to a worker cooperative, it provides for a workplace or an environment where decisions are made democratically, 
where you don't have one class of individuals, namely investors, controlling the fates, the minds, the bodies of another class of individuals, i.e. the workers. Um, moreover, in very sort of narrow, you know, uh, sort of, you know, dollar terms, right, when, you, when, you, when, when a dollar is uh, paid into a worker cooperative, when you, you know, sort of consume a product or the services of a worker cooperative, that money is going to be divided equitably among the workers. So uh, there are certain sort of hard decisions that need to be made about wages, for example. You might have somebody who's highly trained who sort of in, in, in our market demands a higher, higher wage or higher salary. But then you also have decisions that are made about sort of end-of-year surplus or profits, and usually those decisions are made really quite sort of in a very immediate egalitarian fashion. And you described a couple of uh, worker co-ops when you spoke at the New York City Council hearing. Yeah. Here's a clip of what you had to say. Okay. New York City can take an active hand in helping to incubate, create, provide the business planning, not just the financing, right? Not just an open door for somebody to sit down in a chair and get a pat on the back, but for New York City to provide a, a direct and active hand in doing the business planning, the fore planning, the advanced planning to create these businesses, to then go to the workforce uh, roles, to do the hiring, to hire the, the, the senior managers, the professionals that will also be necessary for a major construction business. We really have an opportunity to, to really make our mark here as far New York City Council. We have an opportunity to really set a new national standard. This really is something that's new. The Bay Area, uh, Cleveland, Chicago, they're not doing what we're about to do. There are conditions that make it easier or more difficult for co-ops to thrive. Yeah. Um, part of the point of the hearing was to yeah. flesh out what some of yeah. those might be. Yeah. What did you learn? What did you hope the council learned? Yeah. And, well, what do we know about what makes a city co-op friendly? Sure. Well, I think the best example of a city that's co-op friendly is the city of Bologna um, in Italy, right? And in that city, about 80 to 90 percent of the social services that the city provides to its public uh, uh, are are essentially contracted out through worker cooperative businesses. So right now, already in the United States, th we have something, you know, we, we, we call it third-party government. Uh, you know, we have this incredible, vast system in which the government doesn't necessarily directly provide services to its citizenry, but actually... Uh, contracts out and, you know, purchase, it doesn't, it doesn't form its own construction company, right? We don't have the construction company of New York City, rather we hire other construction mm -hmm. companies to do the work for us. So, in the city of Bologna, the, the worker cooperative community has leveraged this to their advantage. Um, and I think that we're perfectly capable of doing that here at home. Tell us some more about New York City's co-ops. I mean, A, how many are there and what kind of things do they do? Sure. Well, uh, in the first place, you can find a fantastic listing uh, of the uh, worker cooperatives here in New York City on our homepage, uh, nycworker.coop, and there's a business directory. These are, after all, businesses. Now, you make it sound like an enormous number, but last time I looked, yeah. it was like 23. That's right. It's a very small number of worker co-ops, and there's, a, there's still a very small number of worker co-ops Nationally, so we have about you know we have a sizable fraction of the of the U.S.'s worker co-ops are here located at home in New York City, but still a very burgeoning phenomenon. So, we, but if they're so great, why are there so few of them? Well, that speaks to all sorts of, of issues uh, with regards to the culture here in the United States, uh, education around business, uh, state support for cooperative incubators and cooperative institutions like New York City Network of Worker Cooperatives. So, where do you think the biggest challenges lie for 
moving the needle on this question, getting us from 23 to, I don't know, 123 co-ops in the next few months? Sure. Well, well, you know, I think that this is a, certainly a multi-year vision. Uh, fundamentally, uh, what my organization advocates and I think what uh, worker cooperative, uh, you know, advocates nationally and internationally advocate uh, is really moving the conversation about our economy to, 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 to a very different place. Um, we're not merely advocating that it would be nice or it would be fun or it would be good to have worker cooperatives. We're arguing ultimately that this is sort of a, a moral imperative that really every employee, every worker, every human being has a right to democracy in the workplace. Now, in terms of moving the conversation in that direction, you know, that, that's going to take decades, you know, maybe even centuries. Um, in terms of taking some very bold steps in that direction, I can't think of a better thing than the conversation that we're having right now with New York City Council, with New York City Economic Development Corporation, with New York City Small Business Services Department, um, and thinking about the ways in which we can integrate our democratic government with building democratic businesses. Why is this conversation coming up as it is right mm -hmm. now? Well, uh, I think that progressives, you know, sort of writ large, have had a major victory with Mayor de Blasio. So I think that we're seeing a real, you know, city council, city government is really receptive to these ideas in a way that they likely wouldn't have been uh, under previous administrations. And the data that you point at to suggest that co-ops are a rational and effective response mm -hmm. uh, to the inequality that we see in our mm -hmm. society? So purely in terms of numbers, right? So you have on the one hand, right, you have just sort of one might have, one need not necessarily have, but one might have a sort of a moral impetus or a moral feeling that humans shouldn't be rented out by other humans, mm -hmm. right? That humans should democratically control their own businesses in partnership with their fellow workers. Now, in economic terms, you see around the world, internationally, certain ethical standards which are in place in worker cooperatives. Uh, and those ethical standards uh, generally insist upon a, an approximately 8 to 1 ratio between the highest paid employee, say, let's call that person the CEO of the company, and the lowest paid uh, person in the firm. Um, of course, that's rad those are radically different numbers than we are really qu conditioned to accept as normal here in the United States, mm -hmm. where we have a ratio of at least 475 to 1, if not higher, uh, in the last fiscal year. Um, and there's, a, of course, a very good reason why worker cooperatives are allowed to impose an ethical standard which allows for an 8 to 1 pay ratio, and that's because they're democratically controlled by their workers. Mm -hmm. Final questions. I was just in Chicago where oh, I've wonderful. been uh, covering the story of the, uh, what used to be the Republic Windows and Doors factory, now yes. the New Era Windows. Yeah. I saw them. They're set up. The place is beautiful. Yeah. They need business. Yeah. And they are very hard up for contracts in the global yeah. economy. Yeah. They are undercut on every yeah. front. Yeah. What, what makes you believe that a co-op mm -hmm. can function in a capitalist yeah. economy? Sure. So on the one hand, we have concrete examples of firms like the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation with 80,000 members or, or worker members, and they've been competing quite successfully in the global capitalist marketplace for decades now, making everything from, you know, racing bicycles to home pressure cookers that you, you make food with. Um, on the other hand, the, the realities of the competitiveness of, of the global capitalist marketplace 
you know, they, they, there's something that uh, worker cooperators, people who believe in a, in a, in a democratic uh, economy, have to sort of reckon with. Um, and it's precisely for it's precisely for that reason that uh, I think that it's extremely important that we start to look at what can be done with public spending. The city should clarify that that worker cooperatives are ex an extremely important uh, tool to combat economic inequality. That. Worker cooperative businesses are treated as a prefer, given sort of preferred contractor status, mm -hmm. and ultimately that contracting targets are set every year, and hopefully incrementally those targets increase, but that every year 5% or 10% or 20%, and maybe one day 100% of sp city spending will have to be channeled through worker mm -hmm. cooperative democratic businesses. Not to do anybody any favors, but simply if you've stated as your goal reduction of inequality... Yes. And poverty yes. is one effective way to go. Yes. yes. I've got to ask you, as you mentioned Mondragon and its success, yes. um, there is the more depressing news that in a global economy, their biggest factory, yeah. and it's a network of factories, but Fagor declared bankruptcy. Yeah. Does that right. ruin your argument? Uh, I don't think in the slightest bit. I mean, as far as I understand, about half of those employees of Fagor have already been brought in as employees in other parts of the company. Mondragon is an incredibly dynamic, democratically run business, uh, and you know that's part of life. It's part of business. It's part of human need, right? Uh, we no longer want flip phones; we want iPhones. So, if the flip phone division gets shut down, well, then you bring those workers into you know the not the smartphone yeah. division. So, I, I don't really think ultimately it's any kind of large problem. All right, so look ahead. Last question. Look yeah. ahead five years, or take ten. I'll be generous. Oh, give um, me ten. <laughs> what do you want to see in place in this city, yeah. um, whether it's anchor institutions or new protected mm -hmm. markets for co-ops mm -hmm. or new educational possibilities mm -hmm. and training, um, new property perhaps? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you want to see mm -hmm. that would leave you to think your work had been well done? Yeah. I think the number one thing that could be achieved uh, in the next ten years would be that we've established certain contracting goals on the part of the city, uh, that those contracting goals are set in a progressive manner to increase over time, and to complement those contracting targets that the city is providing uh, money, financing, and resources to develop businesses tailored to those contracting goals. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
There's an old fable about a scorpion trying to cross a creek. The scorpion comes across a frog and says, Froggy, oh froggy, you can swim and I cannot. Will you carry me across the creek? And the frog says, But you're a scorpion. Won't you sting me? And the scorpion replies, Of course not. Why then we'd both drown. So the frog agrees. But halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And as they both sink into the depths of the creek, the frog says, Why did you do this? Now we shall both perish. And the scorpion replies, Don't blame me. You knew I was a scorpion when you met me. There's a new fable about a frog trying to sell off the royal mail. <laughs> Only in this story, it's the frog who seeks out the scorpion. Only, of course, they're not scorpions. They're 16 highly respected hedge fund and investment firm managers. They're nothing like scorpions. <laughs> the frog went to the hedge fund managers, shook them warmly by the pincers, and hand, hand, I meant hand, <laughs> and said, Now, look, the government wants to sell off Royal Mail, but we're worried that people might use it to make a vast profit very quickly. And the hedge fund managers replied, Vince, oh Vince, a vast profit very quickly, you say? Well, yes, we must certainly make sure that doesn't happen. Thank heavens you came to us. So, what I was thinking was, uh, would you perhaps be prepared to allow us to make you priority investors and let you have far more shares in the Royal Mail than anyone else will be allowed to buy before anyone else is allowed to buy them? We would need your assurance that you won't just sell them if the price should rise quickly. I see. You would like us, hedge fund and investment firm managers, whose whole raison d'etre is to buy stock when it's cheap and sell it when the price rises, to assure you that we won't do that. <laughs> well, that would be great if you could, yes. Yes. Are these assurances you want, uh, would they be legally binding? Oh, no. I don't think we need to bother <laughs> Very well then, my friend. By our hard, scaly shells and our curly, venomous tails, we assure you that we probably won't do that. <laughs> and so the frog floated the Royal Mail at three pounds and thirty pence a share. And the priority investors, for instance, Lazar Asset Management, climbed aboard and settled down to be long-term, stable shareholders. And immediately, the share price rocketed by nearly forty percent. And this was embarrassing for the frog because it meant he'd really badly underestimated the worth of the thing he was selling. Although it wasn't all his fault because, after all, he had paid three outside companies to advise him what price to charge, uh, Goldman Sachs, UBS and Lazard. <laughs> Now, you mustn't get confused here uh, because of the name Lazard. I should stress that Lazard, the guys who advised the government to sell the Royal Mail at £3.30 a share, and Lazard Asset Management, the guys who are allowed to make a large early investment at this price, they are totally different companies. <laughs> well, they're not totally different, <laughs> but they're not part of the same company. Well, okay, they are part of the same <laughs> company, but they're totally separate wings of that company. Uh, the company has two very different wings. I imagine the company's like a bird. Um, okay, then, like a bat. Uh, <laughs> it has two wings. It's got the wing that advised the government what price to set, and then it has the other really very separate wing that made a lot of money from that decision. <laughs> and indeed, the frog wasn't worried. 
Even as the share price continued to soar, he patted his travelling companions confidently on the carapace because he had their assurance that they were in it for the long haul. And so they were. Until later that week, <laughs> when Lazard Asset Management sold their entire stake and made £8 million. And within months, almost all of the other priority investors cashed in too. And as the poor frog began to sink into the depths, he cried, Why did you do this? Because now we shall both perish. And they replied, Don't blame us. You knew we were hedge fund managers when you met us. <laughs> and also, uh, we won't perish. <laughs> no. You're forgetting that we've got two wings. And so saying, the scorpions flapped away into the sunset <laughs> on their leathery bat wings with their millions of pounds profit clutched in their pincers and left the frog to drown alone in front of the Public Accounts Committee. <laughs> and the moral of this story, I think, is that the bat scorpions were right. We can't blame scorpions for stinging frogs or investment firms for stinging business secretaries. That is their nature. But we can blame frogs and business secretaries for giving them the chance. Particularly if the business secretary's whole reputation is based on him having been more cynical than anyone else about the bankers, and if he's part of a government which, whatever else you think about them, are really very familiar with the ways of hedge fund managers. <laughs> because, of course, private companies will do everything short of breaking the law to maximise their profits. That is not intrinsically wrong. That's what they're for. They're actually not like scorpions because they don't want to kill the frog. They just don't mind killing the frog. <laughs> what they're really like is fire. All fire wants to do is burn. And like fire, private companies and market forces can be harnessed for the public good. There's nothing inherently wrong with privatisation. Marcus, down boy. <laughs> But if you're going to play with fire, it is up to you to make sure you don't get burnt. If the frog buys a paddle steamer and contains the fire in an iron furnace, then the fire gets to burn the coal it's given and the frog gets to harness the fire's power to cross the creek. But if the frog decides to bring the fire up on deck to help him steer, <laughs> at the advice of the fire... <laughs> because the fire has given the frog its solemn assurance it won't burn anything. <laughs> and if the frog is fool enough to believe that, well, the fire was a fire when he met it. And the frog is very quickly going to find himself up the creek without a paddle steamer. Hi, Jay. This is uh, David. I live in uh, Indiana, and I just listened to the last, uh, that's the last podcast. Um, been a long fan for a long time, and I have to say, I'm glad you uh, talked about the uh, kind of toxic nature of getting too involved in uh, listening to nonstop political commentary. Um, during the last presidential election, I uh, I was listening to almost nothing but like the Daily Show, that's the left. Uh, Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity, funny enough, just to get a, another perspective. And uh, it really uh, had a 
pretty bad effect on me <laughs> during that time. I uh, ended up in the hospital a couple times, honestly, with uh, chest pains and went to the doctor and they told me I was having um, anxiety attacks and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I can't uh, second that opinion strongly enough to go do something else for me. I just kind of stopped looking to everything for a few weeks um, right after the election and uh, got really into me. I mean, I'm a full-time musician, so I just sat at the piano for hours just trying to, like, not think about stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, go find an outlet and don't let things get to you too much. And uh, that's all my words of wisdom. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So regarding that call we just heard, I, I'm hoping that that is an outlier case, an extreme case, because I would hate to imagine just mass hospitalizations from people paying too close attention to politics. I mean, uh, are, are we raising the cost of health care and health insurance just by having political talk shows? Maybe, but, but let's hope that that's not the case. I've never been hospitalized myself, but I've certainly gone through periods of not doing too well. And, um, this whole conversation sort of reminded me of a clip that I just heard a few days ago, and and the story it's in, in its entirety was probably not going to rise to the level of you know being played on the show. But I was reminded of it through this conversation because uh, within the full story, there's just a, a little clip of Amani Gandhi. She's the legal expert over at This Week in Blackness, and she describes just her daily routine of dealing with Twitter in, in particular. And, and it's such a good example because my awareness of the whole concept of mental health vacations and, and, and breaks from work and politics and, and just sort of unplugging was really heightened the more I listened to uh, women and especially women of color. You, you, once you get into those subgroups of people interested in politics generally – the amount of vitriol and, and you know and terribleness goes up i think exponentially so you know as a straight white cis dude i can feel bad about politics because shit's fucked up but if you're uh, a, a you know a woman of color dealing with politics you're not only pissed off because shit is fucked up but because people are also well, I'll just let Amani tell you. Twitter sucks when it, comes to, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to handling abuse and harassment. Well, yes, yes. It's really, 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 terrible. really terrible. Horrible. They suck so badly. How much do they suck? So badly that people, just non-Twitter working people, have stepped in to develop apps to help cope with harassers and abusers. What? Yes. Uh, Jacob Hoffman Andrews, who's a senior staff technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, unveiled Block Together. It is an app that allows users to share their list of block users, blocked users with friends, and it also allows them to auto-block new users who at-reply them. So for people like me, who has who have a stalker, I have one stalker, who goes by the name of Assholster, it's right in the name, he's an asshole, he creates five to ten accounts per day just to call me nigger, just 
you know, I wake up six, seven in the morning, check my Twitter. Hey there, nigger. How you doing, nigger? And it drives me crazy. And I delete, and I block him and he gets blocked after three or four tweets. And then he comes back again with another tweet. Hey there, nigger. And it's very frustrating. So the pa- for the past couple of weeks, I've been taking screenshots of all these nigger tweets and tweeting them directly to the CEO of Twitter and saying, Hey, are you going to do something about this? I've, you know, I got one response from him. He said, we're working on it. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but meanwhile, other people have stepped in. So I have signed up for Block Together. I signed up for it today and it's like a whole, it's like a new day for me on Twitter. I don't have to wince every time I check my mentions. I don't have to look at it with like one eye closed and the other eye squinting, just wondering if I'm going to see that stupid asshole with his stupid avatar calling me stupid N-word. Now, it probably won't surprise you to hear that the worst messages I ever get are pretty much just from people who are wrong and have that special blend of arrogance and ignorance that makes their wrongness that much more grating to deal with. Like, really, that that's almost as bad as it gets. Uh, you know, I've been doing this show for eight and a half years, and I don't recall ever being called a name of any kind. You know, m- maybe once a year I get a message from someone saying, like, well, you know, the show's pretty good, but I hate the host. But, like, that's pretty much it. And if you needed another example of what white male privilege is like, there you go. So, you know, if you ever wonder if the emotional barrier to entry is a little bit lower for straight white guys to get into the media and and deal with politics than pretty much anyone else, I I would say so. And I think that that goes a long ways to uh, explaining the gender and race disparity in the media landscape, especially in the political realm. But now moving on from terrible things that people say to lovely, amazing things that people say. I want to remind you that we are in the middle of a campaign to get a whole slew of new five-star reviews to help boost up the show. So we're on track to get a thousand new iTunes reviews. We want a total of 3,000 reviews and 300 Stitcher reviews, reviews on uh, the Stitcher platform. So right now we need just a little bit more than 900 reviews on iTunes. We started with... I don't know, 19-something, we're now past 2,000, on our way to 3,000, and now we need less than 200 reviews on Stitcher. So this is an ambitious goal, I recognize. It took about eight and a half years to get the first 1,950 reviews, and now we want to get another 1,000 in about one month. That's it's It's a big ask, but I think we can do it. And so now we need a little bit more than 900 reviews on iTunes, uh, less than 200 on Stitcher. And you think like, well, 900, that, that's a lot. So like if I leave a review, then that's not going to make that big of a difference. And you're right. But the only way we're going to get there is if people like you think, well, it does only take 45 seconds. So maybe it's worth it because each individual drop of water can't be blamed for the flood, but all those drops of water getting together is the only way the flood's going to get there. So if you would, please take a couple minutes out of your day, help out the show. It's totally free, obviously. Help us get to 3,000 reviews in iTunes, 300 reviews in Stitcher, and I think it'll really help boost the show. The timing is particularly good, which is why I'm doing this campaign right now. When the new software for iPhones comes out, I think that everyone is going to have the podcasting app installed on their phone if they don't already have it. And it's going to make a lot of people say like, hey, what is this? And they're going to click on it. And I would like to have Best of the Left be at the top of the list at that moment when 
everyone is checking out the podcasting app for the first time. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show, as I've just been telling you, by leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Are we killing time? See